The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagby, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest of the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you tonight? Pretty fine, John. Thank you. Yourself? Great, Father. Great to be Good here. Good to see you there. You too. Father, we have uh, several different topics that we would uh, like to discuss tonight. Just to give a, a brief overview to our viewers of some of these topics, we uh, had a question that we have been intending to get to for uh, actually a couple months now, and that's on the uh, the, the Bishop Challoner edition of the, uh, the his his revisions of the Bible, <coughs> the uh, the Dewey Reims Bible. So we'd like to discuss that. There's also a uh, an article that we came across um, on the Gloria TV website regarding. Uh, the Society of St. Pius X and the uh, General Superior, Father pa David Pagliarani, talking about the uh, the vaccine question and some of his comments there. Um, we also had a couple other viewer email uh, question about the, the death penalty and um, also ones about uh, the souls in purgatory interceding for us and the soul in mortal sin praying for others. Uh, and we have other questions as well, Father, so we'll see uh, how far we get into. But I'd, I'd like to uh, start with this question about the challenger revision of the Bible, because as I said, we've had it for some time, and I think it is a very good question. Um, but this viewer just asking in general what your thoughts are in this challenger revision of the Dewey Ramus Bible, but in particular, he asked if you think it is an accurate translation of the Vulgate Bible, because he references a Father Hugh A. Pope, who... Uh, and one of his writings apparently said that there are uh, some typographical errors in the Chaloner revision and that there are multiple places uh, throughout both the Old Testament and the New Testament where there are some kind of, uh, I guess you would say, some kind of typographical errors in there that do not line up with the, the Vulgate of St. Jerome. So, Father, how would, you, uh, how would you respond to that? What are your thoughts on the Chaloner revision of the Bible? Well, Bishop uh, Richard Chaloner was a very prominent churchman in England, um, he was born in the late 1600s. His work was done primarily in the 18th century, therefore. So in other words, about two centuries after the so-called Douay Reims translations uh, of, the, of the Bible were made, and um, uh, Bishop Challoner's objective was to update the language. Um, explicitly so, he wanted to reform the language of the Douay Reims translations to make bring them well into vogue at the time to make them more readily understandable and read more fluidly according to the the, the English language at that time. There's always a real peril involved with that, of course, trying to update the language because uh, let's face it. I mean, when you when you start with translating scripture from the original. Uh, languages of the manuscripts, from, especially from the Greek, you, you automatically are in the realm of having to make interpretation. 
as you're translating, you have to choose, choose words, and you choose a variety of words to express the idea that you think it should say, right? And we as Catholics have the benefit of believing in a church established by our Lord Jesus Christ and endowed with authority by him to make these judgments and to be able to uh, pass judgment on translations of sacred scripture and to guarantee that these are accurate and uh, that these translations uh, are in accord with the true meaning of the revealed word of God. Uh, Non-Catholics, uh, notably Protestants and so on, have, have no concept of this. An authority on earth that could tell them uh, whether a translation is accurate or not. So they have dozens and dozens and dozens of different translations which uh, accord often very little with each other. And yet they all claim, well, these are, this is the Word of God, but it's actually somebody's interpretation, right? <laughs> translation. Um, so, you know, if, if we say that, well, with the translation that went on at uh, Douay and at Rennes, at uh, Reims, as we call it, the translations of the Old Testament and the New Testament that took place in the 1500s required, as translations, also interpretations of the Word of God. Uh, we have the church that, that tells us that these translations are accurate and reliable. And there's nothing in them contrary to the revealed word. Um, so we'd also have to say that when Bishop Chaloner, uh, two centuries later, uh, set pen to paper, or quill to paper, or whatever, and began to revise the language, he was also, again, having to indulge in an exercise of interpretation, especially in an effort to um, take the what he considered antiquated terminology, the antiquated language <coughs> of the Douay Reims translation, and try to put it into what at that time was modern English usage. Um, I, I understand that when uh, the Protestants actually finally did produce the King James Version, which, by the way, uh, came out after... The, the publication of the Douay Reims in English. So it's kind of ironic that they claim, the Protestants claim to be producing this uh, English translation because the Catholics wouldn't allow, you know, the, the vernacular uh, scriptures in the hands of the people. But the fact is that the Douay Reims translations were already uh, produced and available by the time the King James ever saw the light of day. And um, I understand that, that even in, uh, in referencing, uh, well, what should I say, they were looking for some help in um, the King James translations and would actually sneak a peek at the Douay Reims translations uh, to see how the Catholics translated these passages. Um, I doubt you'd find them admitting that very often, but uh, the fact is there was some kind of cross-pollination there. But... It is also said of Bishop Chaloner in the 1800s that he did the same thing the other way. That in order to help him try to render the, the Douay Reims translations into a more updated English uh, language, that he would refer it to the King James Version and consult it to see how the Protestants had translated these various passages. And actually, that he was consciously 
bringing the translation of the Douay Rheum, his translation of the Douay Rheum, or retranslation, I would say, of the Douay Rheums, um, into more alignment with the, the King James, which is an alarming idea. You know, that's, that's not exactly what you're looking for. Uh, if you want really an, an accurate translation, one that the church had already told us was reliable, and now is being revised, and being revised, uh, you might say, with, under, under, the table, under the table consultation with the, uh, with the King James Version. So, um, now I, I haven't studied the Chaloner Version, except to, to see that it, it certainly does have updated language. And since then, you know, they've gone from the uh, 16th century translation of the Douay Reims to the 18th century retranslation um, into the more updated English of the time to the 20th century translations of moving the bar even into more modern English. Um, again, there's a great deal of peril in trying to change the divine word to suit the modern lingo because the vernacular language is continually changing. Uh, terminology is getting all kinds of new, uh, often unhealthy nuances, you know. So uh, it's a, it's kind of a losing battle, uh, as the Catholic Church understands in her liturgy, why she held on to the Latin and the Greek and uh, the ancient languages, because she knows it's a losing battle to try to somehow um, keep up with the Joneses and, the, and the, the, the vernacular languages, they're continually undergoing changes and corruptions. Um, that if you really want to maintain that tie with the ancient meaning, you have to maintain the ancient language. Uh, does this make it, you know, a, a bad thing to do? Does it make it a... a, a uh, an unworthy effort? Does it mean that Bishop Challenger was uh, somehow um, betraying the faith and doing such a thing? Well, I'm sure that was the farthest thing from his mind. Um, but uh, I, I think, just personally, I, I would consider the Challenger translation to be um, not as reliable, um, somewhat suspect. If I was reading a, a Challenger uh, rendition, I'd really want to have the, the earlier Douay Reims unchanged text at hand. In fact, what I really want to do is have the Greek New Testament, notably uh, the Septuagint. I'd like to have that at hand because as I would be reading the Challenger version, and I've noticed this too when I've seen these tra translations um, or you know, heard them read from the pulpit, there are always things about them that uh, sound a little bit loose, um, not not nearly exact as the as the uh, Douay Reims, and therefore I think really working worthy of checking it out, you know, uh, to see what the earlier translation was and what the original text was. Um, so that being said, I, I would just basically leave it at that. I, I consider to the the Challoner um, rendition. Uh, a reworking of the of Douay Rheims to be in, inferior than the Douay Rheims itself. But you say, Father, that the Church did 
uh, at least approve his retranslation, as you called it, and so far they, they said that there's nothing contrary to the... Well, with the Douai Reims they did, certainly. But they did not do but, that. But the Chaloner, I, I'm sure there is some ecclesiastical authority. There had to be some ecclesiastical authority behind it. Now, whether that ecclesiastical authority is just uh, within the province of England and England, England's bishops, I don't know. Uh, that's a good point. Good question, Tom. I'd like to check that out as to how that exactly was uh, approved mm -hmm. and uh, authorized. Um, <clears throat> was it uh, something that actually was, uh, uh, you know, a, a given a formal approval from, uh, from the Holy See? Uh, one would think that it would have to, but I don't know that. I'm not sure what authority approved it. Okay. But you're saying, Father, that, uh, that... But I'd like to check that out. Um, you, you are saying, though, Father, that you are... Excuse me. You are, uh, you're, you're opposed to this, this, even in principle, this idea of, uh, of updating the language and trying to have a more, more modern uh, translation of the sacred scriptures, you think, just stick with uh, well, the theories and... Not, not entirely. I mean, it has to be careful there. As I say, carte blanche, this is a bad thing to do. Yeah. I mean, you know, you pick up the Douai Reims um, as the original translation, and you might find it hard to read. And um, you pick up the Hadok Bible, and you, with all the commentaries and so on, and again, you might find it more difficult to read. Um, and so some might say, well, you know, if only they could render this into more modern usage so I could read it without feeling that I'm reading it in English and yet having to translate it at the same time into my English. Um, but I, I just uh, say that one has to be very careful in doing that. Because as G.K. Chesterton said, the, the difference between Latin and a modern language is not the difference between a, a, a dead language and a living language. It's the difference between a, an immortal language and a dying language. And uh, so that's what you're doing. You're actually uh, you know, trying to take what is already in, let's say, a, a, an antiquated form of English and render it into modern English usage, which is changing even as, you are, as you're making the transition there. And um, again, um, people might underestimate the, the difficulty of that task, saying, well, you're just going from an older form of English to a newer form of English, so, I mean, where's the danger in that? But the fact is, there is danger in, in losing the meaning or obscuring the meaning, mm -hmm. even in trying to take it from an older form of English, which much be, might be more exact, uh, and put it into a modern terminology which is not nearly as precise. There is danger in that. Um, but that's why Christ gave us the authority of the, of the church, and that is why the powers of hell have done everything they can to attack that authority, mm -hmm. undermine it, to erase it. And of course, we can see today, Father, why that concern is definitely justified when one goes to any bookstore and goes to the Bible section, or no, yeah. <laughs> who knows how many incredibly different uh, variations of the Bible, and um, just <laughs> everything under the sun now, there is a... There's a, a translation of the Bible. I mean, that. everybody has to have his own his own translation, right? Yeah. And basically, as Martin Luther said, everybody in, interprets it for himself, mm -hmm. with the direct influence of the of the, of the Holy Ghost. Mm 
or they'd say now the spirit. So everybody basically uh, just makes it up, decides for himself what it really means. So, yeah, so you have the, the Tom Nagley uh, translation of the Bible, and I have the Father Jenkins translation of the Bible, and that's, that's what we've got left here, is just nothing, in other words, nothing, nothing reliable. But that is not the Catholic way, as you know. Right. Okay. All right. Uh, well, thank you for that, Father. I appreciate it. If we could uh, move on. We had, had a good question here from a viewer who uh, writes in and says that modernists, both in the church and in politics, they cling to death and lifelessness uh, through birth control, abortion, abortion, euthanasia, assisted suicide, etc. And he says they want as many people out of the way as possible. So why then are these same modernists opposed to the death penalty? Um, well, first of all, modernists do have, well, the, the terminology culture of death has come up. That's, that seems to be like the, the big uh, uh, go-to expression, you know. Uh, talk about abortion and, and uh, euthanasia and so on. And I think cult culture actually has a very, has a positive uh, ring to it, you know, culture. Because it never... It never seemed right to me to refer to it as the culture of death. It's the cult of death. Yeah. They really do have an actual cult of death. Um, and, and that is uh, present basically pretty much throughout our, our whole modern, modern uh, societies, right? Uh, throughout the, um, the music, the, the so-called rock music and so on, there's, there's an actual cult of death involved in it. And fascination with it, and even exaltation of it, the weird, the distorted, and ultimately the deadly. Um, and so it is with abortion. Yes, when when you start uh, down that road of justifying the wanton murder of not just one but millions, but even one would be enough to, you know, lay the principle, lay down the principle of death. You're really promoting a cult of death in a society, and that's why we are where we are right now. I mean, everything that we're going through right now, everything we're facing, everything we're fearing, everything that is threatening us starts right there with this country uh, acquiescing to abortion as a way of life, as the new normal at that time, right? That was the new normal, and so we are here now facing this new, new normal. It all goes back to that. So I agree that there is definitely a cult of death that has risen up, and modernism has an enormous amount to do with it. Um, but why, why would modernists oppose the death penalty? Well, you have to understand that it's not just physical death that modernists prove. Modernists actually promote spiritual death. They promote the death of faith, and uh, Popeyes the Tenth made that very clear. He didn't use the expression, you know, the death of faith. Uh, well, he came awfully close in the encyclical Pascendi in 1907 when he talked about modernism. But he did say that modernism was the most dangerous enemy that the, the, the church had ever faced, bar none, because it is not just a heresy, it is a complexus or synthesis of all the heresies because it destroys the very meaning of the word faith. The very, not just the faith, 
like the, the doctrines of faith in the catechism. Modernism, he says, lays the axe to the very root of the virtue of faith in the soul and destroys the virtue of faith in the human soul. Now that is death. That is spiritual death. And that is, that is what modernism does. That's like the very essence of modernism. It all starts with uh, the redefinition of the word faith to make it not only not what the church teaches is true faith, but the opposite, the absolute denial and rejection of the very concept of faith as Catholics know it to be. Okay, So, um, yes, uh, this gentleman or lady has, has really pinpointed the fact that modernism is a death cult, and it starts uh, by destroying what gives life to the soul, faith. Right? Um, but because of that, you see, modernists um, destroy innocence. There's a certain hatred of innocence. It's a very hellish thing. I mean, Satan himself uh, hates innocence. That's why he tries to get us to sin. It's not just he enjoys seeing us uh, befoul ourselves. Um, he actually wants to destroy in us the very natural image of God by, na by, by nature. But ultimately what he wants to destroy is the supernatural image of God in us by sanctifying grace. That's what he wants to attack. And uh, so he hates the innocence that is the, um, the very purpose of, of sanctifying grace, the, the divine life in the soul. Um, what we know is, first of all, sanctification from sin, or justification from sin, and then sanctification by grace. He wants to destroy both justification and sanctification of the soul. This is the divine life within the soul, sanctifying grace. Um, Bishop Sheen, I think, said it rather well once when he said that uh, the difference between a bad man and an evil man is that a bad man will somehow profit from the, the bad things he does. In other words, he will promote uh, bad activities because he somehow benefits or profits from those bad activities. But an evil man is motivated by a hatred for innocence, and his objective is to destroy innocence wherever he finds it. That's what true evil is. And you find that in modernism. Uh, in its destruction of faith, laying the axe, as St. Pius X says early on in the encyclical, the encyclical Vashendi, to the very root of faith, and destroying the supernatural life of faith and grace in the soul. So that's why they, they see no problem with, um, as Francis says, not obsessing with abortion, not obsessing about birth control, not obsessing about euthanasia, as though Catholics should not be so concerned about these things. It's one of the first things he said when he became the Pope of the New Order. Um, but but with, the, with the death penalty, now that's different. Why? Because when you are attacking these other things, basically you're, you're attacking life that is, well, innocent life. But when you're attacking the death penalty, that is somebody who is uh, condemned to death for a, a heinous crime. 
there you're dealing with uh, a soul that is guilty. And the modernist um, will trample over the, the souls of a thousand innocents in order to try to rescue uh, one guilty person. And they, they will say they're doing this in the name of compassion. Um, so they have really n little interest <laughs> in saving or rescuing or preventing the mass destruction of innocent human life. But when it comes to the, the life of someone who's actually guilty of crime, uh, let's say horrible mortal sins uh, against God, all of their compassion goes to that person. And they want to somehow uh, portray that guilt as though it were something itself worth saving, as though, as though that is uh, something of, uh, what should I say? They, they value that guilt that that person has. Uh, so you have somebody who, let's say, gunned down uh, three or four policemen in a, in a, in a traffic stop or something. Was, uh, they were about to apprehend him or something. And immediately the Nova Soto clergy will come rallying to the cause, and Francis will practically come swooping from the Vatican, um, um, insisting that it, it would be terrible to take the life of this person. Uh, at the same time, very, very feebly does he speak up if with once in a great while or anything pro-life. And even as he's doing that, he, he's giving awards to pro-abortionists throughout the world. He's awarding them papal awards of recognition for their great service to humanity. And they're uh, look, he was promoting the uh, president of uh, the Irish Republic over there a man who is totally devoted to abortion. And yet Francis is holding up as a great deal, as a, as a great example of wisdom uh, for the people to admire and an example to follow. Uh, this happens over and over again. Francis just came out and uh, made a proclamation uh, commending a nun for her 50 years of work, um, basically in promoting the LGBTQ message. And, and normalizing that and, and making that quite acceptable. Uh, he'll come out and say, well, this, this is not a good thing. And then he will go and he will praise a woman, a nun, supposedly, who uh, devotes her life to normalizing that, minimizing any evil involved with it and making it acceptable. Uh, so this is what Francis does. So you'll find the modernist is always very sympathetic when there is guilt and crime involved. And the modernist will uh, go out of his way to defend that and, uh, and somehow minimize the evil and even find something to glorify in the criminal. But when it comes to those who are innocent, the modernist has very little interest whatsoever in uh, lifting a finger to save the life of an innocent. Wow. Okay. Thank you for that, Father. Um, if we could go on to another question. This viewer uh, asks if the souls in purgatory can intercede for us. Well, the common wisdom of the church, uh, I don't know that the church is actually uh, pronounced solemnly on that. Uh, but certainly, I think you could make the case that uh, in her ordinary magisterium, 
uh, daily teaching throughout the centuries, the church has certainly been very favorable to the to that that the souls in purgatory can intercede for us. Okay. They are in the state of God's grace. They do love Him. They don't love Him perfectly yet, and they do still have sins to expiate, uh, temporal punishment due to sin, which is why they're in purgatory. Their love for God is being purified, but it is real. It is genuine. Their souls are saved. They've been pronounced saved. And they are awaiting that uh, moment when they will enter the beatific vision. Um, can they pray? Yes, that's what they do. They pray. Uh, they, they both pray and they still love. Um, and so the, I think the common wisdom of the church's theologian is, yes, that the souls in purgatory well, they cannot do anything for themselves to expiate, as it were, to, what should I say, um, escape or make up for the temporal punishment due to the sins of their lives. Um, that's why they're in purgatory. That's what they're doing there. Um, they can still uh, ask Almighty God to have mercy on their loved ones here on earth. In fact, there are, I think, uh, quite a number of saints who appeal to the souls in purgatory for help at times. All right, uh, then the same viewer asks also, can a soul in mortal sin pray for others? Uh, she says, if the prayers are unmerited, where will the graces be applied after that soul in mortal sin goes to confession? Well, a soul in the state of mortal sin, I think we might have spoken about this before. I seem to have a recollection. Uh, that we did, the soul in the state of mortal sin uh, lacks uh, the virtue of divine charity. Uh, the soul in the state of mortal sin still has faith and still has hope, which is why the soul can repent right, and uh, return to the grace of God. But um, the soul in the state of mortal sin has the first responsibility to God, and that first responsibility is for that particular soul to convert and to return to the state of grace. And there are those, and I think rightly so, who say that because that is the first order of business for a soul in the state of mortal sin, that whatever act <coughs> based upon, let's say, motivated by, uh, by actual grace, whatever action that soul does in terms of uh, penance or prayer is directed first to the re re repentance and the reconciliation of that soul to God. So uh, the soul in the state of mortal sin uh, basically is in a state where all of their efforts, all of the efforts have to go to getting them back into the state of grace. Um, and I, I think there's a very strong theological argument for saying that if the soul is in the state of mortal sin, it would be nonsensical to think that that soul could pray for everybody else, um, their conversion, uh, their benefit, whatever it might be. And meanwhile, that soul remains in the state of mortal sin and, uh, uh has not yet actually taken the necessary steps necessary to, to apologize to God, to be absolved and restored to grace himself. Um, 
So I'd have to say that I think, let's say, a father who is in the state of mortal sin it basically leaves his, um, his loved ones like orphans. Spiritually, they're orphaned. And uh, whatever prayers he offers um, must go directly um, to the cause of his own conversion, his own repentance, his own uh, forgiveness and uh, um, justification from sin and, you know, uh, being restored to God's grace before he can be of any really spiritual benefit to anyone else. Okay, very good. There may be other Catholic clergymen who would uh, find fault with that, but I, I'd like to know what they what their take is on that. Okay. Right. Uh, well, then also, Father, we wanted to discuss this um, this uh, article, this post that we came across on the Gloria TV website, where the um, Superior General of the Society of St. Pius X, Father Pagliarani, he, uh, there was a short video that was linked where he uh, was was speaking on the topic of the the vaccine, the COVID vaccine, and uh, the, some, the the mandates, and just some of the, the in general, the positions surrounding the vaccine. And uh, he made some interesting comments in there, Father, and he said that the uh, the SSPX the society prefers to, quote, step aside on this issue and not really make a, uh, make a pronouncement one way or the other. And he kind of um, appeared to criticize both sides. He he, he spoke against the uh, the idea of a, of a vaccine mandate, but also uh, those who are opposed to the vaccine. He interestingly lumps uh, everyone who is opposed to the vaccine uh, for any of the various reasons. He lumps them all together and apparently uh, seems to equate them with the my body, my choice crowd. Uh, for for some strange reason. So, Father, I know you've watched through this video. You've you've read through the post, which we can link to it. Um, what what was your your reaction to that, Father? Well, you know, Tom. Whenever anything like this happens, uh, I hear it. I hear about it from people who send me the information and are asking, "Well, what what do you make of this?" And um, I I was more than, I'm more than disappointed by what Father Davide Pagliarandi, who's the Superior General of the Society of St. Pius X throughout the world, more than disappointed, again, I'm, I'm alarmed by what he says, because I think it is, it is so poor. And uh, again, I, I mean, I see a tendency in the leadership of the SSPX to compromise. And this I find be a fine example of that very, very compromise, which, which very much concerns me about the leadership and the direction that the Society of St. Pius X is taking, taking the people, the traditional Catholic people. <coughs> I mean, I, I look at these arguments that Father Pagliarani gives, and I find them not only faulty, but I find them uh, worse than faulty. I find them dangerous. Yeah. You know. uh, some time ago, actually, September 24th of uh, last year, uh, Father Arnaud uh, Seligny, who is the, the Secretary General of the Society of St. Pius X, uh, spoke, and um, he, he talked about the vac vaccinations, too. And obviously, the, he talked about it, as Father Pagliarani is talking about it here, because uh, the people in the, of the Society of St. Pius X 
are looking for guidance of their clergy, and they're, they're asking them to tell us what should we think about this, um, how should we deal with this, this, this issue. Um, our, our lives and livelihoods are being threatened, our, our, even our ability to participate in human society is being threatened now by these mandates. What are we to think about this? So it's a very serious question people are asking. And they have right to a very serious answer. And I just don't think the Society of St. Pius X leadership is giving them a serious answer. Uh, quite, quite the contrary. I mean, the, what I have here is from uh, Gloria TV here. Something also called en.news. And uh, this was just 15 hours ago. So this is right, fresh off the press here. But Father Pagliarotti gave a, uh, a talk on this very subject. And um, this, this uh, write-up is very critical of what Father Pagliarotti writes. And also this has comments from people also, and they are pretty much universally uh, critical also of uh, Father Pagliarotti's uh, 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 explanation of the society's position or lack of it. And I can understand why the people are, are unhappy because this is not what they need from their clergy right now. Basically saying, well, we're just going to avoid the issue, I guess, right? We're not going to come down one way or the other. And the reason being, as you say, is because, well, Father Pagliarotti makes the point, well, you have what he refers to at one point as a heterogeneous anti-vaccination alliance. You have an alliance of these various groups that are against the vaccinations, but they're heterogeneous. He says, you have some on the right and some on the left. You have the Greens, you have the leftists. And he said, and, and, but they all, they all are against these vaccinations. Um, as though there's some what, why, why is that an issue? I mean, why even mention that? Of course, I mean, there are various groups who have their different take on this reason and the reasons why they don't want these vaccines here. Well, Father Pagliarotti seems to try to say that you have this, this mixture of uh, anti-vax groups that are, form some kind of an alliance. I don't know that's true, that they're actually forming an alliance. I just hear the, the various groups opposing the vaccinations, each for their own particular reasons. I don't think there's an alliance going on here. I don't know where he's getting that. We're not allied with the Greens. The anti-vaxxers among the conservatives are not allying themselves with the leftists to oppose the vaccinations. They're not allying themselves with the Green Party to oppose the vaccinations. I mean, each has their own purpose. The leftists are not opposing the vaccinations because these, these things were derived from the cells of aborted babies. It's the traditional Catholics who are opposing that because in principle they find that absolutely abhorrent. So why would Father Pagliarotti almost equate that opposition of the traditional Catholics <clears throat> to the abortion origins of these, these so-called vaccines? to the reason why, let's say, the Green Party or um, maybe PETA or some other leftist organization is opposing uh, the vaccinations on other grounds. There's, there's no comparison of these two things. 
But he also goes, goes on to make that point that you mentioned about the pro-abortionists. But the pro-abortionists saying, well, it's my body, my choice, my body, my choice. And, and then kind of likening that to the conservatives, even maybe some traditional Catholics who are saying, well, I have a right to my own self-determination. And, you know, I have a right to, to, to uh, approve or reject a vaccination. As though, as though Father Pagliarani is saying, well, if you say that you have a right to the integrity of your, your body and you have a right to refuse a vaccination, but essentially what you're, you're using the same argument as the pro-choicers when they say, my body, my choice. He even goes so far as to say this. He says, he reduces this, this, this author says, with my body, I do whatever I want. That's a quote from what he says. And he equates it with the abortion cry, my belly belongs to me. Thus, indiscriminately comparing a human right to a crime as if children were part of their mother's belly, right? As though um, saying, yes, I do have a right to determine, a civil right to determine whether or not I want a vaccination. As a woman saying, I have a right to murder my baby, right? Because let's pretend that that baby is part of me. Um, this is totally wrong thinking. And uh, it's so wrong, in fact, that, that it's ludicrous and it's dangerously wrong thinking. But this goes on, it says, vaccine critics follow the same principles like fighters for human rights or freedom, Pagliarotti believes. Quote, we find again the same principles of the new order started 300 years ago in the name of human rights and human dignity. So he's trying to say that those who stand up for human rights and human dignity and refusing the vaccinations are basically part of that same um, new order that started 300 years ago with these false principles. And you know what? That's, that's not only not true, it's, it's the opposite of the truth. It is the absolute opposite of the truth. Um, but again, this all goes back to that very, very muddled, muddled thinking that goes into the Society of St. Pius X's position toward the Vatican right now, Francis, and, and the, no, the whole new, new order, which makes the, um, <laughs> those who are truly opposed to the Novus Ordo, <laughs> those who are totally opposed to modernism, concern about the direction the Society of St. Pius X takes now and it will take in the future because they just do not have the right principles. And it, it, it keeps manifesting itself over and over again when they come up a hard, against a hard question like that. They do not have the right principles. Um, if, if he's faulting those, um, let's say, the conservative or the right, as he says, who oppose mandatory vaccinations, uh, that's the very least we can say, uh, if he's faulting them because they have this kind of individualistic idea of freedom, uh, as though that is, uh, again, the, the Protestant Enlightenment New World Order principles that came up, you know, uh, 300 years ago. And so they're actually part of this revolutionary process by opposing the vaccines. Well, he's ignoring the whole question about the origin of, of these things, uh, how they are 
either derived from the cells of aborted children or they are tested with them. Okay, so the process of producing them, though, does involve the aborted uh, cells of babies. He's ignoring that fact, so that doesn't even, it's not even a factor here. But um, he's also ignoring the fact about whether these, this technology is dangerous and damaging, potentially very damaging. He's ignoring that. So people have nothing to say about that. The, the only issue that he brings up, um, for which he, he actually blames uh, the, the, the basic heterogeneous anti-vax alliance that he's created in his own mind, is that they take a stand on individual liberty and individual rights. Well, he sounds like Francis. He sounds exactly like Francis in that. Because that's what Francis condemns. That we have a social responsibility, a moral obligation to be vaccinated. You know, Enough of your individual rights. He sounds like Fauci in this. But you can't stand on your individual rights when it comes to the common welfare. You know? Society needs you to get vaccinated. We need you to get vaccinated. You're going to get vaccinated. One way or the other, you're going to. And this, by the way, at the same time, that the, the head of Pfizer comes out and says, the vaccines offer very limited protection against COVID. He says that. He comes out just in the last few days, and he says, these vaccines offer very limited uh, protection against COVID. So um, this is the man who once was saying that the effectiveness of his va the so-called vaccines was approaching 100%. And now he's saying there's very limited, limited benefit to these things. Um, at the same time, there's this mad drive to compel everyone to be injected. Uh, and, uh, and the head of the Society of St. Pius X comes out and says something like this. It's just, it's, it really is outrageous in my mind. You see, I look at this in a, in a larger picture, too. I mean, you look around the world today and you see societies that have been raised in, in tyranny for centuries now. And the concept of uh, the individual having any personal rights, God-given rights, um, is not only hard-pressed today, but there are some societies in which that concept doesn't even exist. <clears throat> and, and if you were to examine in human history the societies that have come and gone, the civilizations that have come and gone, some are still with us, but which are totalitarian societies, which are controlled by the strongman, uh, by the dictator, the tyrant. And the tyrant could be one individual, or could be a small group of individuals, the oligarchy, or it could be the majority rules, like the, the democracy of Athens, in which the democracy uh, finds one man, uh, Socrates, uh, not in accord with the, the modern, the, the, the going wisdom, and so they decree that he must die, um, just because he's not um, meeting the expectations of the majority, right? Um, a tyranny can be a tyranny uh, of, uh, of uh, you know, the vast, like a, a supermajority of voters who vote that those who are not vaccinated have to be quarantined in camps and kept there like penned up animals because they will not be vaccinated. That's tyranny too. 
uh, a majority rule can be as much a tyranny as, uh, as a despot, a single despot. Uh, and in such a way that the individual rights of the person are no rights at all, but they're privileges given by, given by the tyrant. And the, as privileges are given by the tyrant, they can be taken back by the tyrant anyway. Okay. But this is something that we find spelled out in our own United States form of government, that these rights that we have before government are not from the government. They are from God. They are inalienable rights. They're enumerated as the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, you know, the only religion on the face of the earth and the history of mankind that has actually promoted that has actually promoted these rights is Christianity. A belief in our Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God is the only religion, the only religious uh, belief, the only religious faith that actually is consonant with those principles of the, uh, the rights given by God to each individual. <coughs> because each individual is created by God specially in his own image. Um, this is, this is, even, even, even the, the Jews of old did not have this concept of the individual rights. The individual was very much considered to be, like an extension of the society, existing for the sake of the society as a whole. And it could, could easily be sacrificed, you know, for the interests of the society. But only Christianity has given us a rise to a, an actual society which is built upon the very foundation of the, the rights, the God-given rights of the individual person that have to be respected uh, by the entire society in which he lives. Um, there are those who will, who will tell you this was a Protestant idea. That's exactly not true. That is, that is the opposite of the truth. I mean, these, these ideas were enunciated by St. Thomas Aquinas in his Principles of Law. Um, and, and government. These ideas were enunciated by St. Robert Bellarmine. Um, these are Catholic ideas here. And this idea of, of the God-given rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, these come straight out of the Catholic culture of our Catholic faith. Um, you know, Martin Luther did not teach these things, right? He taught he taught basically the prince, he was more Machiavellian than anything, that the prince, has, as a prince, must rule as a prince, and he, he must actually not um, take into consideration divine law, even. He has to rule as a prince. Um, so, in any case, what we see happening here, I'm afraid, with the, even as it applies here with the Saudi St. Pius X and its current leadership, is to try to take that idea of the, the, the rights of the individual before God, the rights of conscience, the integrity of conscience, and the obligation that each individual has directly to God, and to somehow criticize them and to associate these with liberalism and to uh, do what Francis does and denigrate these rights uh, as though they're nothing but, uh, 
egoistic uh, self-interest, you know, contrary to the good of the whole society, just because you, as an individual, assert the fact that you have God-given rights. And this cannot be tolerated, right? As Francis keeps insisting, the common good, the common good, the common good. Well, his concept of the common good is not the Catholic concept of the common good. It said you have to strip the individuals of individual rights and everybody has to line up, shut up, roll up their sleeve and get vaccinated because he says so. And because um, a, 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 a tyrant, you know, living in a, uh, it's at a certain address, you know, is mandating that you, everybody has to do this. And you have a moral obligation, therefore, to do this. What Father Pagirani says here, I think, leads in precisely that direction. And um, I think it leads toward uh, collectivism, totalitarianism, and ultimately tyranny. So I would ask him to please, please review his thought on this subject. And uh, at least talk to, uh, be open to talking to people who disagree with him. Um, I've heard um, critiques of his thought from lay people and I, who I think are much more clear thinking than he is, even much more Catholic thinking than he expresses in this. So um, I'm, I'm hoping and praying that uh, uh, this latest example of just the, the very weak and uh, muddled principles of the Society of St. Pius X and its leadership, I hope, I hope this is rectified as soon as possible. Okay. Thank you for that, Father. Any uh, final words for us before we close? Well, uh, you know, here we are in Christmas tide here, and we as Catholics have to, we are duty-bound as Catholics to continue celebrating the birth of our Lord and the epiphanies, as I mentioned in the last program. The manifestation of our Lord, his divinity, uh, his salvific mission here in the world to again justify us from our sins by redeeming us on the cross and sanctifying us by the power of divine grace and giving us a share in the divine life. I mean, this is, this is what life is all about, really. As far as the Catholic mind and the Catholic heart, this is what our life is really all about. The life of this world is nothing, right? It's nothing. It's um, whether you live a day or you live uh, a century, when it's over, it's over, and you have to show what you've done with that life that God gave you, and all of the benefits and all the graces that he's given you. Um, so the longer life can be a real liability for those, you know, who are uh, not cooperating with the grace of God. <coughs> but God's patience is there to try to draw them on, and ultimately to save them. Um, the um, we, the fact that we are here living within this time right now should uh, really draw us on to appreciate more and more the patience of God and how he, he tolerates so much uh, evil that the world, that the world does, that the world uh, hurls at him day by day in defiance of him. And why would God do that? For the sake of the love of those, uh, well, he, he himself refers to them as the elect, right? There are people in the world today, obviously, who are doing penance, who are 
making reparation, uh, united with the cross of Christ, in patience and loving patience, trying to do exactly what our Lord said, take up their cross daily and follow me, and uh, follow his example. And it's all a labor of love. We have to try to be those per people, and we have to try to appeal to others to, to, to join the ranks of those, uh, not who are offending God, but who have repented of their own sins and um, reformed their lives and are now faithful to our Lord. We have to try to bring them over. We have to try to uh, um, echo the voice of Our Lady at Fatima, calling for that repentance and that reform uh, that only grace can, can achieve. Um, we have to realize that, that what is happening in, in the world today, that uh, you know, every, all of the evils right on down to modernism itself, is the result of sin. It is a result of our sin. And we have people who are very worried about what's happening in the world. Uh, as the Gospel says, uh, men fainting away for fear of what evil is coming upon the world, what they see coming upon the whole world, right? And yet, um, they are, um, you know, so determined that we're going to fight it every inch of the way, we're not going to let them, you know, the, the totalitarians and the leftists and the one-worlders take over the world. world. We're not going to give them our children. And yet, they have to look inward and think, well, here I'm living, I'm living an impure life. I'm in the state of mortal sin because of fornication or living openly in adultery. And yet here I am fretting about what's happening in the world around me and that I might lose my liberty or I might lose my bank account or my, my, status, uh, my status of living or whatever, right? And here they are at the same time, part of this defiance of God in the way they're living the way they're, they're talking, the way they're joking, uh, the kind of entertainment they indulge in hour after hour on the internet and their cell phones and so on, all of which can be spending hours a day defying God, offending Him by mortal sin. Yet people who live day after day after day, week after week in the state of mortal sin, and yet they are demanding that God swoop down from heaven and make all of these bad things go away, just so that they can go back to their normal way of life, being in the state of mortal sin, and getting away with it, and not having to worry about anything. The consequences of sin. They want to continue living in their adulteries. They want to continue being able to live in their fornications. They want to be able to continue with their lewd entertainment and their immoral entertainment. Uh, and they want God to be complicit in taking away anything that threatens that. And that's what they're really worried about. So what can they honestly claim as, as any, any right to expect that God is going to say, oh, okay, I understand you're worried about losing uh, you know, the, the conditions of your life that, so that you can just live a carefully life and live and die in the state of mortal sin. And you don't have to, you want to deal with these, these issues or these threats, you know. Uh, and that, so you're appealing to me now to come to the rescue. Well, of course, I think at this point God is saying, I'm not going to rescue you. Um, what is the Antichrist himself going to do? He's going to tell people 
Look, you don't have to repent of your sins. Just go on sinning. There are no consequences to those things. The Antichrist is not going to save you from your sins. He's going to promise to save you from the consequences of your sins. So you can sin merrily away, and you've got nothing to worry about. It won't come to anything. It's the Antichrist, you know. We basically have the vicar of the Antichrist now telling people that, basically. There are no terrible consequences to actual sin against God, you know. It's just, you know, creating a, a social, socially uh, uh, woke world that is really the one thing that should concern us. Uh, any offense we give against God by our impurities and, and all the immorality, well, that's, we shouldn't obsess about those things. That's the message of the Antichrist. <laughs> so, I, I, you know, to, to wrap it up here, Tom, I think we, we have to try to get across the people. And look, if you're concerned about the, the leftists uh, gaining the upper hand here and basically taking control and turning the uh, entire world into a gigantic gulag, um, just because um, you, you want to be free to carry on your sinful lives, you cannot expect that God is going to be pleased with that. This is the problem. This is why this is happening in the first place. And the only right any of us has to expect that God will use his divine power uh, it will be for the sake of saving ourselves, not helping us to damn them to hell, by basically uh, assuming the role of the Antichrist, saying, sin all you want, I will make sure there are no consequences. You know, um, there are consequences, and this is my effort to save your souls. This is my effort now to save your souls. So uh, the best thing we can do, the only really honest thing we can do is examine our lives, examine our consciences, recognize what we are doing uh, to offend God and stop it. Exactly as Our Lady said at Panama to repent, reform, and make reparation for the sins of mankind and beg God's mercy. It would not be a mercy from God to let the entire world just go in a it's carefree, fun-loving way to hell. That is not what God's mercy does. God's mercy uh, is here to, uh, to redeem us and to save us. And uh, the task that God has set, even for his own divine son, and for us now, is to save us from our own sins. That's the enemy. That's the problem. It's not what's happening halfway around the world. It's what's happening in my own home. It's what's happening in my own soul. That's where I have to start the work. So, I, I hope uh, that, that some of that made sense. I am a little difficultly expressing. Uh, my thought here, but I, I hope you could interpret that into English. I think so, Father. <laughs> Better than Bishop Challoner did. <laughs> okay. <laughs> to bring it back full circle. Yeah. Okay, well, Father, thank you for being here tonight. I appreciate all of your time and appreciate everything that you do. God bless you. Well, Tom, thank you, too. Yep. God bless all. You and all of our watchers. Absolutely. Listeners. Thanks to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima. To consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.